This episode of The Happy Scientist is sponsored by the Archbridge Institute and features Dr. Brandon Vaidyanathan, Associate Professor and Chair of Sociology at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Vaidyanathan's research examines how culture shapes human flourishing. He is involved in work and well-being in science and international study to understand the critical factors that affect scientists' well-being. See the episode description for a link to get more information on this groundbreaking study. This is the Happy Scientist Podcast. Each episode is designed to make you more focused, more productive, and more satisfied in the lab. You can find us online at bitesizebio.com slash happy scientist. Your hosts are Kenneth Vogt, founder of the executive coaching firm Vera Claritas, and Dr. Nick Oswald, PhD, bioscientist, and founder of Bite Size Bio. Hello, everyone. This is Kenneth Vogt for The Happy Scientist. We're so delighted to be with you today, and we've got a very interesting interview today with someone who's done a study that I, I don't know where they came up with this idea, but it's such a great idea, and I hope you think so too. So allow me to introduce our guest today is uh, Dr. Brandon Vaidyanathan, and he is an associate professor at Catholic University of America. Uh, Brandon, welcome to the program. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Great. I wonder if uh, if you'd like, you could give a bit of a potted bio or anything else you'd like to add to who you are. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm a professor of sociology, associate professor of sociology at Catholic University, as you mentioned. Um, my area of research is is mainly in organizational culture. So I've uh, looked at how cultures shape human flourishing broadly in business, in religion, and in science. So those are the three sectors that I study. And uh, the work we're going to talk about today is is part of that research on uh, on scientists. All right. So that being said, we're going to we're going to be talking about a study that you've recently done. Good. Uh, what's the title of your study? It's called Work and Well-Being in Science. All right. And it it focuses to a large extent also on on the impact of beauty and when it comes mm-hmm. to wellness for scientists. So well, let, let's just start with that. Beauty is not something that at least the outside world often thinks of when they think of science. But that is probably not the case for scientists. Scientists probably see a lot of beauty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so it does lead to a question. What does beauty mean to a scientist? What, how, how are they seeing beauty in their work? Yeah, it's uh, you're right. I mean, a lot of people on the outside uh, seem puzzled when I tell them that I'm studying beauty and science. They don't see those words going together at all. Right? I think we have a stereotype of scientists as being cold and dispassionate and socially awkward and, you know... <laughs> unemotional um apparently they haven't met many scientists <laughs> yeah no really that's that's the yeah i think that's that's really the stereotype we're trying to dispel uh and uh yeah so so we found actually the the uh, I can tell a little bit about how this started because a number of years ago i was doing another massive international study of scientists and i was on a team with uh, a number of other sociologists and we were uh looking at the social context of science everything from family life ethics religion uh those sorts of things and at the end of these long interviews, we did about 600 interviews. Towards the end of the interviews, we heard scientists telling us about the the 
many sacrifices they were making for the sake of their work. They're giving up their um, sometimes their health, sometimes you know prestigious jobs in industry, etc. Uh, we were mainly studying academic scientists, bench scientists, and uh, and we asked them, well, why do you do it then? Uh, the lar- a lot of them would say because it's beautiful. And so I was really struck by the use of that word. It kept coming up so often. So I really want to understand well, what do they mean by this word. And uh, and so it means different things to, to scientists in different fields. I, I study physicists and biologists, and uh, there's some some commonalities and some differences. And so so we find that there aren't there aren't an infinite number of things. We people say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's not exactly true. Uh, we find that you know in those like initial interviews we did, we we were asking um, hundreds of scientists, you know, what do you encounter beauty in your work, and what does that mean to you? Uh, we found that it only came to about eight or ten things. They were always talking about symmetry or simplicity or elegance or a sense of harmony or a sense of fit or the hidden order or the inner logic of systems. And so it was a, it was a range of things that uh, kept coming up over and over again. And uh, and sometimes they were referring to experiences of awe when they were pulled out of themselves, feeling a sense of vastness. Sometimes a sense of wonder, and they used that as as, as beauty. But uh, we find that that for physicists, beauty often means symmetry and simplicity. And so symmetry in the sense of the symmetry of theories and laws, so you know translation across space, translation across time, a law that is true here on Earth is also true on Mars and any you know, of those sorts of, of, of symmetries. And, um, and then simplicity in the sense that they want to reduce things to the fundamentals. There's, there's a lot of... Um, drive towards uh, developing a unified field theory, for instance, right? Trying to find uh, a single model, uh, or at least a model that would fit on a coffee mug or a t-shirt that explains all the fundamental forces of reality. So that's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, physicists find that beautiful. Biologists don't find those things beautiful. They they really seem to gravitate towards complexity, and they want to understand a system in all of its intricacies, they want to understand, um, you know, how a particular mechanism is activated in some contexts and not in others, and and so there's much more resistance actually towards simplification uh, and wanting to understand things with with adequate complexity, uh, and there's also uh, more of a preference for, uh, you know, visual beauty in biology. So the kinds of patterns that you see in under the microscope and you know seeing life unfold and um there's a lot of visual beauty there uh and elegance means something different to biologists it seems than to physicists a lot of physicists talk about the elegance of theories whereas biologists talk about elegance in terms of experimental design so those are the differences that we see largely but there there are also similarities primarily in terms of uh the hidden order that is you know what is the what are the sort of deeper structures of reality underlying the the chaos that we see? What is the underlying pattern? So describing that hidden order, uncovering that hidden order is equally beautiful to both physicists and biologists. And and then the inner logic of systems, the, the you know causal mechanisms that drive these these different structures um, that explain how reality works. That's also equally beautiful to physicists and biologists. Excellent. I noticed you said something interesting at the beginning of all that, that you study biologists and physicists, and they're uh, usually on the other end of that. Well, we're, they're the studiers. At least that, yeah. that's probably how they see themselves. But it is fascinating this 
the same um, the same methodology gets used. Any decent study, whether it's biology or physics or sociology, you, know, you got to have the same pieces to it. And, and I'm saying this, by the way, because sometimes some of your scientific brethren don't give as much respect to sociology and psychology yeah. as they might. Um, <laughs> but they are, you know, they are they are deep disciplines all the same. And, you know, th this notion of beauty has certainly been available to everybody as maybe as a uh, as a lay person, as it were, not mm. an expert in it, but they they see it all the time. I, yeah. In fact, I just noticed the the, the latest um, newsletter from Bite Size Bio came out, and it, this was not. I did not have any conversations with the editor about this. Something just showed up. The end of the newsletter is some paintings of somebody who's making paintings of electron microscope images, and huh. you know to make them as scientifically accurate as possible. And of course, they're gorgeous. Wow! And, you, know, you, and you you can't not be compelled by that kind of thing. Yeah, and some of the things you just mentioned too, like like elegance is elegance as a mathematical concept. I think is I think is beautiful, um, and and it's now I've, I've mentioned that before, and some of the other things you've talked about have mentioned before in the podcast, because you know biology is made of chemistry, chemistry is made of physics, physics is made of math, mm -hmm. math is made of magic, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But but they're all they all touch each other eventually, you know. So yeah. So now you mentioned at the beginning the name of your study did not have the word beauty in it. It was yeah. about wellness and well being for scientists. So so what's the connection there between beauty and and well being? Yeah. So I mean, part of the reason we chose that title was because we didn't want to bias the study only towards those scientists who cared about aesthetics and beauty. Um, when we did some pilot testing. Uh, before this study was launched, we found that that physicists seem to be taking it at disproportionately higher rates than biologists. They seem to really care about the topic. And there's there's some debate in physics, actually, about whether beauty is good or bad for scientific progress. Um, so we decided to figure out a way to make this, this sort of uh, potential selection bias go away. And we thought of well-being as being sort of a neutral and, and important area. Uh, there's a lot of research suggesting a, a looming mental health crisis or even a, a crisis in, in progress uh, in, in the scientific community, particularly coming out of the UK. Uh, high rates of burnout and uh, high rates of depression, particularly among uh, postgraduate students and postdocs. So early career scientists um, seem to have a lot of mental health challenges these days. And uh, you know, partly it has to do with the precariousness of the job market, uh, partly has to do with the pressures related to the sort of uh, increasing um, emphasis on, on publish or perish and, and metrics for success and so forth, uh, funding cuts, all sorts of factors uh, institutionally that are affecting this. And so we really thought it's important to understand how scientists are doing. And we thought that, that I mean, it really was a question for us as to whether aesthetic experience, these kinds of encounters with beauty or experiences of awe and wonder were related at all to to well-being among scientists. So that was what we uh, wanted to find out. One of them, I mean, we want to find out what beauty meant, uh, and then then sort of its distribution in the scientific population, the different types of beauty, and so forth. But also its its impact. And so uh, so we decided to focus on well-being as sort of the main uh, theme of the study. And and we did find actually that 
aesthetic experience is strongly associated with well-being. And so we have a one of our we have a couple of different measures of well-being we use for um, positive well-being, uh, something called the Harvard Flourishing Index. And that's a global measure of things like life satisfaction, physical health, mental health, sense of purpose, uh, close social relationships, and so on. And uh, and so so on that count, scientists who encounter uh, aesthetic experiences more and more often in their work. So um, feeling, uh, you know, various, we, we didn't ask them directly about, you know, uh, do you encounter beauty in your work? Uh, it wasn't just that. We gave them a number of things like how frequently do you uh, find yourself pleased by encountering symmetries in in your, in, in, in whether the equations or the objects you're studying or how frequently do you find yourself uh, being surprised by the discovery of a hidden order or, or you know, so, so we, we would get, break it down into those kinds of components. How often were you, um, did, did you find yourself uh, feeling a sense of gratitude for learning something new? Or did you feel, how often did you feel yourself pulled, pulled out of yourself or, or feel a sense of, of vastness in the face of what you were studying? So we had a number of indicators of that sort. And so the more frequently they had those experiences, the better their overall well-being uh, on this on this uh, flourishing index, net of all kinds of controls for country, gender, discipline, even the effects of the pandemic. Um, so it's, it suggests that there's really a strong relationship between between beauty and well-being. Right. Yeah, I heard I heard a lot of words in there that relate back to other episodes we've done on Happy Scientists because our objective is similar to what your study's objective was. We, we want to, we want people to be able to stay in science and build a career that's successful and that makes them feel fulfilled and that, where they enjoy their lives. But, you know, there are those other parts of life that have to come into it. You know, you don't ruin your health to make it as a scientist. You don't ruin your relationships to make it as a scientist, not if you want to do it properly. So um, tell us a little bit about the, the, the structure of the study, you know, did, uh, how did you choose who you interviewed? How many people did you interview? How did you conduct your your data collection? How did that all work? Yeah, so we had a it's it's a mixed method study. We had a quantitative and qualitative component. And so for the quantitative part, we wanted the study to be as representative of the population of scientists as possible. And so what we did was we restricted ourselves to PhD granting institutions in these uh, countries that we studied. So we studied four countries, uh, the US, UK, Italy, and India. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One was uh, these were a subset of a larger study that we'd done earlier, and and these countries had the highest response rates uh, in that previous study. So we thought there would be a higher chance of success. We also had established research networks in each of these countries. Uh, so we had a team on the ground. We had um, uh, interesting differences in in relation to say the R and D infrastructure that, that was dedicated towards uh, you know the, the the proportion of of the GDP of each of these countries dedicated towards science had some interesting differences you know with the U S and U K being the highest and then India being the lowest um, and uh, and also some interesting differences in aesthetic cultures so we were you know, curious to know whether there might be some national differences because of the value of things like the arts across these countries. Um, so, so we selected those countries, and then we uh, restricted ourselves, as I said, to these PhD granting institutions, uh, partly because that would allow us to get a uh, sampling frame, which is a list of all the people we could sample from. And so we could guarantee that for PhD granting institutions, there would be um, 
uh, enough information on the websites about all of the uh, scientific uh, members of the scientific communities in these organizations, right? So all the graduate students, postdocs, faculty, et cetera. And so we could scrape all those websites, compile a list, and then and then sample from that. And so uh, the the you know in these countries the the vast amount of scientists actually the the largest proportion is from the U.S. So we had to stratify that sample. We couldn't take everybody; otherwise, we'd end up just getting more U.S. scientists. So we had to restrict ourselves to a smaller number of U.S. scientists, and then we we took um, the rest in the other countries without having to stratify. Uh, and so we, there were we got a list of about twenty two thousand scientists from from this from this population, and uh, and they we invited all of them to to the survey. We got a completion rate of uh, about thirty five hundred scientists, so that's fifteen um, percent completion rate. We had a higher uh, response rates, the number of scientists who started the survey were about 6,000, something like that. But there were a lot of issues we, we came across. Um, some of the institutions blocked our study because they thought it was a, it was a scam. Um, <laughs> so so we, had, we had a whole bunch of challenges. We tried to do everything we could to increase the response rate. We put out ads in Nature. Uh, we, um, we had a massive advisory board of, of really renowned scientists across all these countries. We had written to department chairs. We had a number of iPads raffled. We had uh, every every participant got a gift card in the amount of about twenty dollars. Uh, so we did a lot of things, but but a lot of people were suspicious that um, you know we uh, academics get a you know scientists get a ton of emails, you know, inviting you to like scammy conferences that aren't real, and you know so we did have a lot of queries saying how do I know this is really a legitimate study? So a lot of people weren't convinced. So unfortunately, the best we could do was to get this fifteen percent rate. Uh, and we were able to, fortunately, since we had the population parameters, we could correct for any selection bias, at least along the lines of country, discipline, uh, to some extent, gender, um, and uh, and position. You know, so so if if you know, we did have more Indian scientists per, uh, compared to the to the proportion uh, in in the population who took our survey, and we had to weight them uh, lower, and then weight the U.S. scientists higher, for instance. So we could do do, do those kinds of corrections. And so that was the survey. And then after the survey, we we, you know, we had these 3,500, uh, we asked them if, if they wanted to participate in a follow-up in-depth interview, which would be about an hour to an hour and a half long. And uh, and that was done over Zoom. And we had about 1,000 scientists who agreed to be part of that. And so from that sample, we took about 200 uh, and and uh, you know wanted some diversity across uh, discipline, gender, and, and position, and so on. Uh, and we did some in-depth interviews as well. Excellent. So, I, I know you were you're making some apologies for uh, the response rate and all that, but what really matters at the end. You had a solid pool yeah. to draw on, and you know, for all the biologists out there, hear that this is good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you may want to look into it more closely. So, let me flip flip this around a little bit because I'm mean, all this you know, well-being, beauty sounds great. Is it always good for scientists to encounter beauty in their work? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So there are a couple of little challenges that um, that we found in our in our work to that, and one of them has to do with beauty being a source of cognitive bias, and this seems to be the case primarily in theoretical physics, where um, there's been for the last uh, century or so a lot of discussion around whether beautiful equations are a reliable guide to the truth or not. And, and it seems that for the first half of the 20th century, 
a lot of prominent scientists were insistent that if you if you just go with beauty, you'll turn out to be right. So so people like uh, Dirac, for instance, was very famous for stating that it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than for them to fit experiment, um, because your experiments could be wrong. But uh, but if you're you know if your if your equations are are elegant and if there if there's beauty in them, you can probably count on experiments eventually validating them. Um, there are others like Maria Gelman, um, you know, Werner Heisenberg, many of them who, who thought that beauty was was a, was a guide, reliable guide to the truth. Uh, the challenge is after the 1960s, and particularly in the last few decades, um, a lot of physicists have been saying that, you know, we relied on the beautiful math uh, to invest a ton of money in things like the Large Hadron Collider and very expensive experiments that haven't really produced much new understanding. You know, so the, the discovery of the Higgs boson, for instance, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, simply validated uh, theories that were developed in the 60s, but they haven't really produced anything new. And that, that's the only real major discovery that's come from that, that, you know, that uh, uh, you know, a lot of scientists are saying that, that some of these other kinds of beauty-driven theories like uh, supersymmetry and superstring theory and so on, um, there's there's really no empirical evidence for them. And it's not even clear how one would empirically uh, assess those theories, right? So how do you how do you assess uh, like multiverses? Like how do you <laughs> empirically validate that? So some scientists are arguing that this sort of beauty-driven science is not, it's not science, it's fairy tale physics or or it's not even wrong. We don't even know what to call it, but it's closer to science fiction than to science. So that's one kind of complaint. Um, and and the, the physicist Sabina Hassenfelder has, has, has particularly been vocal about this. And she, she wrote a really great book called Lost in Math for anyone who's interested in, in this topic. Uh, and the subtitle is How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. Now, we haven't heard any, any similar complaints among biologists. Um, a lot of the biologists we talked to would say that, you know, beauty is you know, it's, it's good to have, I mean, it's, it's a motivator, you know, it, it draws you in to become a scientist or, or it's important to have actually beauty as a heuristic or, or, or a guide in experimentation because you, you don't want a messy experiment. You want your experiment to be designed in a way that's elegant. You don't want to communicate science in a way that's messy. You want to communicate in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. So, um, so that's, you know, at least on the biology side, there seems to be less of a concern about this cognitive bias. Um, the other concern that's come up though is, is that uh, the insistence that, that science is about the pursuit of beauty could be used to exploit scientists. And so we've heard from a few of the scientists we studied that the expectation that you should love what you do, you should be glad that someone is even paying you to do what, what you, you know, ought to be pursuing as a hobby or just for the sake of love, don't ask for promotions. You know, why are you why are you asking for more pay? Um, and so women scientists in particular have have uh, told us that they've heard this narrative of science as a vocation or or science as as something you should do for the sake of love being used as a, a, a justification for uh, denying them a promotion or or tenure or pay, you know paying um you know, junior faculty or, or even contingent faculty, uh, you know, adequately. Um, so that's a big problem. You don't want beauty to be used as a sort of, you know, tool for exploiting people. Um, 
so that that's the other kind of concern that we've seen. Sure, and I, and I think that concern applies to everything that isn't directly the science. Everything mm-hmm. surrounding it. If if you're getting a charge of the the fascination of intellectual endeavor, that can't be used as an excuse. Therefore, you shouldn't be paid, or shouldn't yeah. be paid enough, or or you shouldn't have a good work environment. You know. It's, these things should also be there. It's not so simple that this is merely a transaction. We pay you, you work. End of mm-hmm. story. I mean, that's no kind of life. It's no kind of career. So, and and I love there's another another thing that at least from my vantage point is a new thing in the toolbox. Adding beauty to the toolbox. So, you know, we already talk a lot about about well being on on the happy scientist and. And Bite Size Bio behind that is really focused on helping people advance in their careers. And sometimes that's by learning how to do a Western blot or mm-hmm. learning how to read your flow cytometry results. <laughs> but yeah. sometimes it's something more esoteric. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that word even gets used as a as a pejorative. Esoteric mm-hmm. isn't bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's another world. And you know, one of the things too that you brought up, and I, I like the the fact that there are physicists and biologists in your study, because they they really have some different strengths. And I've been reading several really interesting books of late that are coming from physicists that everybody should read, including you know, biologists, but everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like Our Mathematical Universe by Max Tegmeier, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, another one, oh, I'm looking at my Kindle here. Oh, the case against reality. What a great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's talk and it's talking about the biology of why we perceive the world the way we do. And you know, perceptions are how we find beauty. Now, some yeah. people will find beauty in those like electron microscope images. Some people will find beauty in but in things that aren't visual. Maybe, maybe it's sound, you know. Yeah. And yeah. you think about you know, biologists that are studying animals and they care about the sounds these animals make and yeah you know it's all it's all part and parcel yeah one of the things we find though is is that all of those forms of beauty uh whether whether it's the visual beauty or or you know other kinds of sensory beauty or even the beauty that uh has to do with utility right so whether it's the the use of a beautiful equation as as a as a heuristic for truth or or um, the beauty that you build into your experimental design all of those things are oriented towards something that we call the beauty of understanding and so i i recently interviewed uh, i mean i have a podcast uh called beauty at work and i and i recently interviewed a a virologist who was telling me you know yeah when i look in the microscope they're pretty images and so on but that's not really that interesting to me where i really find beauty in what we talk about uh, amongst ourselves uh as beautiful is the beauty of understanding. So, so all of those other forms of beauty, the sensory forms of beauty, are really valuable only in as much as they contribute to understanding, shedding new light on something. So that's where those, those themes of, of grasping the hidden order or inner logic of things really seem to resonate for most of the scientists. In fact, close to 80% of scientists said that that was what beauty meant to them, uh, either the, the hidden or discovering the hidden order or the inner logic of, of, of things. Um, so we see that as the orienting force. In fact, we want to argue that science is a quest for the beauty of understanding. That's the business of science. That if you're not in that business, 
uh, you're going to burn out. It's, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're in it for other things. You know, maybe you're in it because it's a nice career, it's a comfortable job, et cetera. Um, but then you may decide that there are other things that could meet those goals for you better. Um, but primarily those, those who seem to be committed to doing science, uh, the vast majority of them say they're, they're really in it to have that experience of, of the beauty of understanding. Exactly. Well, I mean, we're all familiar with the concept of, of beauty. Truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Mm -hmm. And, and these are, these are high order descriptors. Mm -hmm. It's not so basic as that's pretty or that's attractive. Yeah. You know, beauty is something far deeper than that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with pretty or attractive either, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> serves, yeah. serves a purpose, but yeah. So, yeah, this is this this is some interesting stuff here. So I want to call out again. You just mentioned you have a podcast, um, and it, it's called it's called Beauty at Work. Beauty at Work. So that might be one that you folks want to check out. Uh, it, it's funny in the, in the podcast world, I, I find there's not really that much competition. It's, right. it's easy to say, listen to ours, but listen to his too, you know, because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we want to get information in from all directions. Well, I say information, more like data. It's data from all directions, which we then turn into information because we start to see connections between the data that we pick up in different places. And like this study, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have looked for a study like yours out there. I wouldn't have thought it existed. So um, you know, your people reached out to us and we we do appreciate that because because it fits well into what we're trying to accomplish here too. We want ha happy scientists out there. Well-being is going to matter to them. Every way they can get it, I want them to have it. And and beauty always struck me. In fact, uh, you know, in between the time we first contacted and, and recording this, uh, I, I immediately thought of a uh, a microscopist that I thought you got you guys got to talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, yeah, he's he's constantly posting beautiful pictures on 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 LinkedIn and and he's an interesting guy. But I knew you'd be an interesting guy too from our our uh, introductory conversa uh, conversations. But you know, when else would we expect a sociologist to talk to a microscopist? I mean, right? Yeah, you're not normally going to interact with each other. You're not. You're probably not even at the same conferences, you know. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, science is such a big world. And mm. to people outside it, you know, it all, you know, scientists are scientists, you know. Every biologist knows chemistry, right? Uh, <laughs> if you ask biologists. <laughs> and, and it's funny how there's a hierarchy of some respect some things more than others, depending on where they started from. Yeah. But, you know, it all, it all, keeps branching out and it all keeps crossing over and you know, this notion of elegance i think comes from mathematics originally mm. and and i i like that you said earlier talking about how biologists have more of an interest in complexity mm -hmm. and but there's a reason why life is complex yeah and that complexity you can't boil it down some stuff isn't that simple <laughs> there is a minimum the minimum reduction and after that it's it's just all protoplasm you know <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know the notion of life is a is a, a fascinating one 
when you're when you're studying chemistry, you don't see life necessarily, but when you study biology, you can't avoid it. Yeah. Person yeah. sociology, it's all about life. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. All right. So um, now you've got a a website for your study, which, by the way, is really really nice website, folks. We'll post a link to that in the show notes so that you can get okay. access to that. We'll post a link to you to your podcast there too, because we want to have as much outreach for you as possible. Um, if somebody wanted to contact you, what would be their their best way to go about it? Yeah, they could uh, they could easily contact me on uh, my university email. So that's Brandon V, uh, B R A N D O N V at C U A dot E D U. Um, uh, there's also a form on on my website, and, and you should be able to contact me through that. But uh, yeah, happy to chat with with anyone who's interested in our work. We have uh, a lot of interviews actually with biologists on the podcast. Uh, planning to do more, you know, so. Uh, we'd be delighted to 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 learn more from people who are interested. We also have a forthcoming article in the Journal of Biosciences on beauty and biology that should be out uh, sometime in the next few months. All right, very good. Well, we'll we'll post the the links for your contacts on our show notes also, and and you know, of course, you're on LinkedIn, so that's another place that that uh, Dr. Vaidyanathan can be found. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's coming up next? What what do you what are you going to do beyond the beyond this? What's the next next step? Yeah, I've been trying to look at the role of beauty uh, in other domains of work, and I you know my my conversations with scientists suggested that a lot of these experiences aren't necessarily unique to science. Uh, so I've begun some initial explorations, and they're mm -hmm. very I mean they're not very scientific. They're they're very journalistic. So I've done some. YouTube videos from short films with uh, cocktail bar owners and chefs and, uh, uh, you know, folks working in the nonprofit world, um, uh, lawyers, believe it or not, there's beauty in the law. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, so I'm doing that, those sorts of conversations. I, I've been hosting a series of salon dinners, uh, bringing people together from different backgrounds, scientists, as well as others, to talk about what beauty means to them and the work that they do. Uh, which has been really uh, a fascinating experience because a lot of people find themselves reinvigorated by discovering aspects of their work that they didn't realize were motivating and and worthwhile and meaningful, um, and uh, and so that's 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 another sort of expanding project. The other sort of thing I've been trying to do is uh, you know the, this sort of the concept of the beauty of understanding that we find. We really think that the world has something to learn from what the scientific community has to offer here. So one of the puzzles in our study was, you know, we when we set out to do this work, we thought that scientists um, might might think that communicating the beauty of science would help build public trust in science, because particularly in fields like, you know, when it comes to climate change and so on, there there's there's a, you know, complaint that the way in which science is communicated tends to be very dogmatic, moralistic, kind of finger wagging, you know, listen to us, we're the experts, we know better. So so we thought, you know, maybe maybe scientists would would see beauty as a as a, you know, better way to communicate uh science in a more attractive way. Uh but when we asked scientists this question in our interviews, a lot, a lot of them said no, that's that's really naive. Because people are going to come to whatever set of facts you bring them, no matter how beautiful, they're going to come to those facts with their own political priors. And so if if your facts uh, reinforce those priors, they'd be happy to support your science. And if your facts 
uh, threaten those priors, then then they'll they'll reject you. And, and, and no matter how beautiful your science is, it's not going to to come through. So it's a very old. Actually, Hobbes made this argument some 350 years ago, uh, and uh, and so scientists seem very Hobbesian. But but we think it's not the beauty of facts, but rather the beauty of understanding. So that ability to grasp the inner logic of things that that uh, you know it requires intellectual humility. It requires a willingness to be wrong, even a sense of delight in being wrong because you can learn something new. So we're wondering, like, how do we harness that? And and I mean, because we think that our polarized society needs to develop that sort of, of virtue. Um, so we're trying to figure out how that can be done. Um, we've been trying to bring together some scientists and science educators and, and science philanthropists. Um, and so we're trying to, 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 to have some conversations around that to see how this particular um, you know, process that's cultivated uh, in the scientific community, not perfectly because science has its own internal politics and so on, um, but, but at least yeah, it's- I don't think that's gonna be a surprise to any of the listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't want to be naive about, you know, about the problems in the scientific world, but at the very least there's this this idea that there's, there's this ideal um that isn't even there in the in the in the public and, and so we want to figure out how do we um expand that, make that happen and um and yeah, more generally I'm interested I'm, 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 I've applied for another grant to 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 look at uh meaningfulness in scientific work uh more broadly and so so we'll see if that comes through but uh yeah, there's some some other you know, projects down the down the road, and and hopefully, will come through. Well, uh, that that next grant, I hope you get it because that sounds like a really really useful study. I hope so too. You, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned humility earlier, and that's something that I have touted over and over again, especially to to people that are all you know highly educated and often very intelligent. Humility is so valuable. Mm. You, you're, there's so much more to be gained. And when you're putting out into the world, if you put it out with humility, it, people are a lot more receptive. Mm. You know, I don't, you know, I understand the argument that has been made about people have their priors and they're going to just look for facts to support that. And we all do that to a certain extent, but, mm. but I don't believe everybody does that all the time. Yeah. So we got to take advantage of those moments. So if, if beauty will help with that, fabulous. And it's yeah. going to make for happier scientists if they do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's we want to. Uh, everybody wants to do their work, and you know, not be bothered. But they they would also love for it to be appreciated, and especially if people are working in really erudite fields, really highly focused. It's hard for them to get appreciation from the outside world because the outside world doesn't understand anything they do. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So learning to communicate not just among your peers but but with the wider world is also something that we really we really promote at the happy scientists because it's going to make for a better career for you and you know better day to day too because it's one thing you know, like you know if your mother just like oh well now my son now he's he's some big shot scientist that yeah great that feels good but you'd like them to have a little more understanding which wouldn't it be great for mom to to have a little more grasp what you're doing? Yeah. Now maybe your mother's a scientist too. I don't know, but <laughs> I I remember a time when, I remember in eighth grade I came home with my geometry homework, and my mother said to me for the first time ever, "I can't help you with your homework. I don't understand uh -huh. it." Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and like you know that was when I was you know 13 years old. Yeah, you know, I see what what it's like now for somebody who's now 
23 or 24, now they, they can't even talk to their, their favorite people in the world. And, you know, unless they're their friends in the same field, you know? Mm. So every, every little thing that can make that easier, you know, I, if you can go home and say, look at this beautiful thing I, I saw today. I remember going home. Yeah. I'm a com- computer programmer from way back. I have computer science mm. background. I remember going home to tell my wife, I wrote this really great algorithm today. And fortunately she was willing to sit through that and okay, tell me about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but she didn't understand, you know? And finally it's like, you know what? I'm just pestering you. I got to find a better way to tell you what I do. And so then it moved into, well, here's the impact. Here's, mm. here's why that's, that's good. Why it's great that this is, this is finished and being used and it's, it's made it into this product or into this service. Yeah. So the same thing happens in science as, yeah. yeah. And people doing biology and especially if they're doing basic research and I, and I say basic, I don't mean like simple, I mean, right, right, right. fundamental research yeah. that people don't see it at, at the drugstore. People don't see it at the grocery store, but it impacts that those areas, you know, it, it touches, it touches the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it touched it several steps before, you know, we encounter it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. You know, I think communicating the beauty of that kind of work is really important. I think I think learning how to, I mean, certainly for a lot of scientists, we find that, you know, that sense of, wow, I, I experienced something beautiful is a motivator for teaching. It's a motivator for reproducing the scientific community because you do want people who can who can appreciate exactly what you found beautiful and, and, and you know, um, uh, and you may not be able to share it with your spouse to that degree. But uh, but but then also, I think communicating to the public is really important, even if for, you know, very pragmatic reasons, which is if you want there to be more funding for basic science, it's important for the public to understand why that's valuable, even if there's not any kind of immediate utility. Uh, who knows what, you know, the implications might be down the road. But then there's also look at the understanding we gain into how reality works. And that's valuable right. for its own sake. Right. Well, so, something you said earlier that kind of caught my ear was the notion that oh this you know the large hadron collider all it's done is validate some past theories so but isn't that important validation mm-hmm. is important and we yeah. talk about validation in in the social world you know i want to be validated well so do they right 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 yeah but, but yeah. there it's it's more it's actually more valuable because now we're validating that something is true and a lot yeah. of validation in the social world is just I validate that coming from your perspective, that probably looks right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not so strong, you know. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's a bit more of a question of like how much should we dedicate, right? I mean, I think that's where, with limited resources, how how valuable are those insights? And um, and I realize those are you know hotly disputed questions, but but I think we shouldn't sure. we should you know we shouldn't neglect this kind of the, the fundamental research. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it is being supported. So that part's good. Mm-hmm. It's not like, I mean, there's, there have been times when like nothing could get support that was valuable. We're not really living in that world. It, yeah. it, 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 it comes down to communication though, too, you know, and maybe it's just how you write your grant matters, you know, mm-hmm. and that's part of, part of your career path, something you need to get good at. Great. That's true for a lot of scientists in a lot of different areas. And and it crosses over, and there can be 
we can learn from, from adjacent industries or adjacent disciplines. If you found something that's working, maybe a biologist can use it or a physicist can use it. And, and, and they could go the other direction too. So, and in industry, there's plenty of things that have been already done in industry. They have been proven to work that uh, I'm sometimes amazed how, how naive some scientific organizations can be, even companies. The, you know, the commercial side is like, oh, that's just commercial. Yeah. Just like, you're just, you're just a sociologist. No, he's a PhD. Get it straight. This is, this is a, a deep discipline and it's got high value and, and we can learn from it. So, well, I will, um, I will ask you now, is there anything else you'd like to add? Because I, I loved everything I heard today. So it was really useful, but maybe there's something I didn't, didn't think to ask you about what do you have to say <laughs> yeah no i don't think so i think we covered yeah a lot of the the heart of the work we've done um so yeah i i would uh really welcome any feedback on this project uh you know anything that that struck your listeners i'd love to hear from you all um and uh yeah any ideas for for what you know how this might be um either expanded or or, or the use it might have for scientists uh you know if, if, if more scientists would like to hear hear about this we'd, we'd be happy to share our work but and I love the application of Viktor Frankl to to meaning in science. Yeah, you know, mankind's yeah. search for meaning is ongoing. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and um, everybody, if you if you want to talk to to Brandon, you you'll have the contact information, and there'll be more to learn and listen to his podcast. Definitely look at the website. I think you'll find it quite fascinating. So on that note. We will sign off now on this episode of The Happy Scientist. The Happy Scientist is brought to you by Bite Size Bio, your mentor in the lab. Bite Size Bio features thousands of articles and webinars contributed by hundreds of PhD scientists and scientific companies who freely offer their hard-won wisdom and solutions to the Bite Size Bio community. you enjoyed this episode of the happy scientist sponsored by the archbridge institute you can get more information on the international study on work and well-being in science and subscribe to dr vaidyanathan's podcast beauty at work by following the links in the episode description